Hello and welcome back to In Tune, the Scottish Music Centre's series of podcasts. My name's Keith Beattie and today I've got the pleasure of speaking with Brian Reynolds from 42 Presents, among the many other things that he does. How are you, Brian? I'm very good. Very good. How are you, Keith? I'm good, Brian. Thanks. Thanks. I always start to describe you when, when people ask you. I always say you're a bit of a polymath because you seem to do like a hundred different things. <laughs> um, so, so going from the start, Brian, what was what drew you into music? I, I started like a lot of, a lot of people when I was twelve. I uh, picked up the guitar. There was one knocking around between me and my friends. I, I, had, I had like three good pals when I was when I was a kid, and we all learned to play guitar together, and we started listening to. Queen and ACDC and like it was around the time uh, it was around the time Freddie Mercury died so that big Freddie Mercury tribute concert was on TV and the and we were listening to like we were listening to Pantera and to, <laughs> to Anthrax and stuff and the uh, yeah we so we uh, kind of quickly and we of course we started getting into the Pixies and Supergrass and Green Day and all the in, all that uh, all that indie stuff that was coming mm-hmm. through uh, started getting into punk rock and as we were as we were getting a little bit older and we we were playing in bands starting to do our own gigs. I promoted my first gig when I was fifteen at Jack Daniels in Motherwell. Wow. And it was an eighteen plus show, and I don't think <laughs> anyone there was over eighteen. And they knew that no one was there was over eighteen. But I made like I made fifty quid on promoting the show. Which was, of course, a fortune, you know. Uh, the, the uh, I still remember the guy who hired me, the PA, and I saw, I saw him, uh, I saw him twenty years later, at, uh, in Cineworld in Glasgow. I just watched the movie Anvil, and then, the, then I, saw, I was like, oh, I'm sure that's that PA guy that I hired my first ever PA off for fifty quid in Motherwell, and he, he looks like Robert Plant guy, and he, uh, so the the movie anvil finishes half and half the crowd most of the guys are in tears and everyone's like oh my god and then but i'm like why is that pa there anvil the band come running out take to the stage and go through what i'm sure is exactly the same pa from uh, from, wow. from 20 years ago. <laughs> <laughs> and it's like but it's uh, I mean, it's, it's an, an unbelievable experience <laughs> oh man <laughs> so what bands were you in like what bands did you play in yeah, I, I used. To, I was in. I was playing in bands mostly, mostly with, uh, mostly with my good friend Ian Finley Walsh. Uh, we we grew up on the same street, and we we were best pals. He was best man at my wedding. I was best man at his first wedding. Uh, the yeah. The, so the first band was called the Weeds, and <laughs> then later later on we became the Vanity Witch Hunt. And we we'd done a few like uh, as we were about eighteen. I was at Stirling Uni and. Stirling Uni was a bit of a desert for for gigs. I was very, ha- I was hanging out in Glasgow a lot, and I was very happy to start playing to start playing with Ian again. So we started doing some shows around town, and we'd done we done some gigs with Biffy Clyro and uh, Terra Diablo and stuff. Made a bunch of friends uh, in the city, mm-hmm. uh, and like folks, some folks were really supportive of us. Like Megat Sleazies was really supportive of us, and. Uh, Dave McGeekin was a uh, supportive of us, and the uh, I think Karen McKean 
also uh, mm-hmm. and just like started to meet a few people and started to get to grips with it and then as that band was coming to an end well the, the, basically Ian, Ian joined this band called Lapsus Lingui who I don't know if you remember them but mm-hmm. they were like proper powerhouse like really <laughs> amazing musicians and although I still play guitar I can play a bit of finger style and I've got like I've got my Got beautiful, uh, got beautiful Taylor uh, acoustic oh, nice. right here, the Grand Symphony, and I, I pluck away, you know. But I, I became very, I became like, I was really out of my depth with the musicians that I was around. I was like, mm-hmm. completely surrounded. Well, two of the guys were classically trained. Ian was classically trained. I was comfortable playing with him, but the other guys were like, they were really raising, raising their game and. They were a real, really incredible band. Still one of the greatest bands I've ever seen. And the and they had this manager, and I kind of got I got the idea that the manager w- wanted quite a lot and didn't uh, wasn't doing anything. And mm-hmm. I slowly became the manager of the band. All right. The I mean I, I do feel like uh, I do feel like at that mo- if I would have continued maybe like my confidence as a musician was dealt a fairly heavy blow at that time <laughs> I was pretty good you know like uh, I could do it. I was I could play and I was getting better all the time I'd played for six years and I was only 18 you know mm-hmm. the, uh, but the yeah I mean you, you hit a lot more brick walls back then as far as your progression was concerned like it's like finding unlocking the next the next way to move forward as a musician was I found difficult you know for sure yeah yeah, so I just I started focusing on managing Lapsus Lingui. Then that started kicking off in Scotland and they became really well known locally, kind of infamous, and they were always like hitting each other on stage <laughs> and they were like, spitting all over the place and there was booze flying everywhere and one of them was always bleeding and it was just well, like like this mad cacophony and we were all jumping about wearing leather trousers and drinking pulse cider <laughs> and the uh and I was effectively just part of the part of that wee gang, you know. Right. Uh, and it was, it was amazing. Uh, I mean, they were the way that bands got popular at that time. Like we got popular less quickly. <laughs> and, uh, the, right. So, so Lapsus never really got very popular, other than like little enclaves in like London, Glasgow, yeah. uh, Oxford, Brighton. Uh, um, but I met a, met a bunch of a bunch of cool people, and some of those folks I still work with today. You know, mm-hmm. uh, yeah. So that that just meant that that just meant that in Scotland, well, most of the people in the industry started to get to know who I was. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I, I was like twenty one, you know. And when you're when you're twenty one, you can uh, if you want to organise some parties, you can. It's really easy to organise mm-hmm. parties. Like you've got. <laughs> mo- everyone you know is available to come to a party you know if uh, i mean nowadays if i throw a barbecue it's like <laughs> hard to get a dozen people to a barbecue <laughs> where at that at, at that time i could basically get 100 people to go wherever i wanted yeah and the uh that that's a pretty easy that's a pretty that's an important skill for a promoter for a developing promoter to be able to do so i just kind of harnessed that and i started putting on shows and it was a different time too where like there weren't that many venues. You're only talking about the thirteenth note cafe, the thirteenth note club, mm-hmm. the King Tuts, nice and sleazy. That was pretty much your lot as far as the developing venues in Glasgow yeah. is concerned. You know, yeah, that's right. Uh, the uh, and Tuts was basically unaffordable, so you mm-hmm. had three options as far as uh, putting on shows was concerned: the two thirteenth notes and sleazies. And the uh, so I just started. I started putting on some club nights at the Woodside Social Club, this club called Death Kill Four Thousand, which was just 
crazy. Uh, I was running that with FK and uh, Mark Lawson, and we uh, we had a lot of fun doing that. And then I uh, then a friend of mine, Jim Devlin, wasn't showing up to work. Where he was, he was working at the Barfly, and he was doing poster design. He's a great designer, but he just wasn't showing up. And and I got a call asking to come in and cover him not being there. So I went in and started designing some posters, and then. It happened really quickly. Uh, <laughs> my club night was incorporated into the Barfly. The I got a part-time booking job, and I think in my first like three days as a booker, I booked in maybe like I was booking maybe four or five gigs a day. Wow. Just local band lineups, putting like three or four bands together. But yeah. the bosses were really impressed with that, and mm-hmm. so I found myself age like twenty-two, being being at the same level as the general manager at the Barfly. Mm-hmm. Uh, oh. I mean, that was a that was a mad little that was a mad wee venue. Uh, I loved that uh, venue. I uh, downstairs. Yeah, I mean that, that that that's like the beginning of like the of that's, that's where politics starts to come into. Because I loved the Thirteenth Note Club, you know, mm-hmm. but as a twenty-two year old, it's got nothing to do with me who owns the building. It's just like I'm just yeah. trying to put on some some music, you know. So mm-hmm. I've got some people I'm pretty close with now. Hated me for being the not knowing me. Hated me for being the booker <laughs> of this new evil barfly company. Uh, <laughs> and so, as as a promoter at that time, what would you say would be like? Like you, you're obviously taking risks. You were like booking, maybe booking bands you didn't. Was it bands you knew? I had like there was a list of bands that had played that had played there over time before, and there was a big pile of demo CDs mm-hmm. and the. Uh, so I just got stuck into it. And also, those were the MySpace days. So I, I was also able to, I've started slowly putting together a database of pretty much every band in the white in the greater Glasgow area. Uh, and I started, like, I just started working out everyone's details, how to get in touch with people, trying to, like, I mean, being a promoter, it's difficult, you know, you're gambling, but the uh, as long as you like set up your stall accordingly and you don't take too many chances, then you can just go for it. But in, in the Barfly, they desperately needed gigs to be booked. So they, they were just like, book as many nights as possible and let's see what happens. And Amazing. that's what I've done, you know. It's like, it's just like pick up the phone, be active. And that's the, that's the biggest advice for any new booker. It's like, just get fired into it do not be afraid to contact them and ask them if they will play the show you know yeah. <laughs> even if you're getting nine out of ten rejections mm-hmm. all you need to do to put together a gig is make 40, 40 approaches in the day and then you've got a four band bill you know i can see how how you've became and the company you've formed have became what they've became from from seeing the early days of that like the absolute bravery in the booking like our booking policy isn't really isn't uh doesn't have like any sort of Maybe we're going to fix. Maybe we're going to address that soon. But it's never. It's not came from anywhere. It's simply. Uh, I mean, you're you're magnetized to the to the work to the bands that you want to work with, to the artists that you like. But mm-hmm. the uh, but I try not to let my personal opinion override it because I'm not always right. You know, the, my opinion isn't the isn't a supreme opinion. It's mm-hmm. like I've got decent taste in music. And, and know quite a lot about it compared to compared to a lot of people. There's a lot of people who know way more than me, and there's a lot of people who've got cooler tastes than I do. You know, so, so I've, I've always tried always tried to make that really clear. And mm-hmm. when it comes to developing musicians as well, it's like if you're talking about an eighteen year old, yeah, 
and their ban- or a fifteen year old for that matter, and their band sucks. Mm-hmm. Well, that's not really for me to comment on. It's like mm-hmm. their band sucks now. A couple of years time, they might be they might be the greatest band in the world. You know. Wait, I was going to ask you that. So, do you take like some pleasure and maybe not pleasure, but sort of these proud moments where you pick a band because you really like what they've done, and maybe you've seen them somewhere else, and then you put them on stage, and you and you see them obviously like take off and must get some some pleasure, I guess, in that. I man, I, I mean, you just try, you try to you try to accept these moments with with humility. You know, it's, uh, mm-hmm. it's I'm not I'm not the guy uh, I'm not the guy making the music, and I'm not the guy on the stage, but I'm trying my best to work strategically with the band to build them. Mm-hmm. And I guess they need to they need people like promoters like yourself that will take that punt a bit, I guess, on them and and put them on a stage, or they might never get to develop. You know. I think that's. I mean, we could we could do better. We could do better at communicating our uh, how we want to be supportive, you know. And we do like uh, we we're not we're we're not snobbish. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think like maybe like our perceived position is a bit more aloof than it actually is. Right. Uh, we've we've not made that much of an effort to really communicate mm-hmm. our values to people. Right. And the uh, and that's like something that we're going to need to look at over the over the coming over the coming months and years. Right. The, uh, but we, but I mean, absolutely. I mean, that's the it's in the hug and paint. It's in these. It's in mono. It's in these tiny little venues where where the magic is. You know, it's like once the, once the show is at once the show is above two thousand, particularly once it's into arenas. It's like mm-hmm. it's a very different beast. That's a uh, It'll never go back to it'll never go back to that to that moment where everyone is doing it for free and everyone is just getting fired in and it's just it's the moment the energy and the momentum and the promise that the future holds is uh, drives everything forward, you know. And if you got like a from that, if you get a preference, like do you obviously haven't seen some of the bigger shows like Nils Fram and Olaf Arnold's and these big shows as well as some of the festivals that you've booked for, like have you got a preference to that, to like a tiny club, to seeing a, a band, you know, first time playing? The moment for me is when, is, and it can happen, it can happen with a band that I didn't, it could happen with a band that are even a little bit bigger than, than uh, I thought, but the moment for me is when I'm looking at a band and I'm thinking, oh, yeah, they're all right, yeah. <laughs> uh, fine, yep. And then suddenly I'm like, Man, these guys are good. Man, they are really, really good. This band, and at that moment, you're like, "That's that's a really, it's uh, a really magical, mm-hmm. really magical moment where your mind changes on something." You know, where yeah. the that's that's something that only live can do. Where you, where the with the the life story of the artist, like everything everything that their life has encompassed until now mm-hmm. is presented to you in one show in front of you and it's like the life force that <laughs> entire energy. Mm-hmm. And that's what that's what a good artist can communicate in one show. Uh, it happened to me years ago with uh, one of my first gigs at the Barfly it was the Divine Comedy and <laughs> I hated the Divine Comedy. I went to pick up I went to pick up uh, pick up Neil and Co at Glasgow Airport. Quite rare that I'm having that I'm doing the arts pickups myself, but that was the that was the case at that point. And the uh, 
And I picked them up and I was like, oh God, I hate that National Express song and everything. <laughs> but I'm having a nice time sharing a cup of tea with Neil and it's their first show in like four years or something. So everyone's a bit trepidatious about that. Then uh, they play and I'm just like, these guys are amazing. So I can't believe I don't like this band. They're unbelievable. Yeah. Yeah. I, I love having my mind completely, uh, completely changed like that. Yeah, uh, me too, actually. Me too. I do enjoy it when someone takes you to a show and you're not expecting to enjoy it as much as you have and you come out maybe a bit like, oh man, that was amazing. You know? Yeah, it's like affirming, isn't it? Yeah. So from things from like, obviously from Synergy, you moved on to do the four three two thing. What else is going on with you? What else have you got? The Great Western, the Great Eastern. Tell me more about all that stuff as well. I mean, yeah, I started working with Gronia at Synergy after I left the Arches. Mm-hmm. I left the Arches to start the Hug and Paint, but the deal fell through in the property, and I had to shelf the project, which basically forced me to become an indie promoter overnight because I didn't have a job and I didn't mm-hmm. have a venue. Uh, and I, Gronya and I worked out a way to align together, but it meant that we didn't have a business together, but we shared, we shared the brand together. That worked for quite a few years, and Gronya and I co, co-programmed Wicker Man together, and eventually, uh, eventually, it just it stopped, work, it stopped working for both of us. We both, we both knew it was over, and Gronya told me that she didn't want to, she didn't want to do it anymore. But, but I mean, by that time, I was promoting just so many. So many. I was probably probably promoting like three hundred shows in that year, uh, mostly between between zero and five hundred cap. And some of the acts are getting a wee bit bigger and getting to like Barra's level and stuff. Mm-hmm. The uh, in that time, I had started the Hug and Paint uh, with a couple of colleagues of mine, uh, and the so I didn't pretty much invested all of my money in the Hug. Uh, and that was really, really hard to get going. I was really proud of it. Uh, incredible place, and it's become it's become really, really well known and really well liked venue. Uh, and and I, thought, I thought it was a really true reflection of what we were trying to achieve. True reflection of us, and at that moment, you know. And the uh, then we then I think it was like six years later, five or six years. Got the granny and I had been working together. Can't remember exactly, but mm-hmm. we uh, we decided to part company. But by that time, I had quite a big team in my office, uh, so we we went we went on a staff trip. We we we've been taking staff trips to Tenerife because it's, <laughs> it's, it's pretty cheap to do it. Like we found some twenty quid flights and some cheap accommodation, and we were like, mm, well, let's uh, let's go for that winter, like December, December sunshine. And, uh, so we we went away and we dis- we thought carefully about the new brand. We worked on it for quite a long time, and we uh, we announced it at the start of twenty nineteen. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that was really positive, you know, like uh, become making being completely in control of what we are doing and the decisions that we are making and taking responsibility for our own actions. You know, yeah, we, uh, yeah. So. Like, I mean, over that time, I had started booking the Wicker Man. F- sorry, I'd started booking doing the Rabbit Hole Festival right. mm-hmm. uh, with uh, with Jamie up there, and uh, Jamie and I have become close over the years. Doing the Rabbit Hole has just been it's been hard, man. It's been mm-hmm. really hard. 
they got rained out one year, there was no right. money, there was like, it was complete and utter disaster. But those guys are resilient, you know, the, uh, for, I mean, so it's been really, really difficult trying to work with them, but I, mm-hmm. I have felt with Dune that I really, really get on with those guys quite well, and I'm, I'm really proud of what we've achieved there so far. And that, I mean, only, only like last weekend we would have been going up with, we were doing going up with Dune, and we would have had, we would have had Bell and Sebastian and headlining with Public Enemy, with the uh, with Kate Tempest and John Cale and Pussy Riot, and I was like, "Holy moly, this is a serious lineup," you know, Public Enemy and but in Sterling. Uh, <laughs> yeah. So it's just been getting slowly bigger each year. Like last year, we had the Damned and Sister Sledge and stuff, but this was mm-hmm. the sales much much stronger so I really felt like a, an opportunity missed and then I've been been doing other stuff like I've been helping book Edinburgh International Festival with mm-hmm. uh, with uh, with the guys there which has been good I was helping out with Hidden Door Festival in Edinburgh and then we created back in November we created the Great Western Festival multi-venue festival sprawling around the West End it's like what was it 10 venues venues about 60 bands or something like that and that was good i mean we learned how to we learned how to operate these like difficult venues Mm -hmm. different venues i love putting shows shows on in venues which aren't normal you know and that was i was really worried about that on the morning of it i was like is anyone even coming to this festival you know and then by the (laughs) evening i was like no we nailed it. It was brilliant. Yeah. Often, life as a promoter is a roller coaster because you you can feel quite negative about how things are going to go right up until the wire. You know, I was going to say that if you've not got sales, then you've got to wait and walk up all the way up yeah. to the to the doors open. Less less and less now. And then we launched the Great Eastern Festival as well in Edinburgh, a similar sort of concept, and mm-hmm. and a lot. I launched with a colleague of mine. I launched the National Whiskey Festival uh, a few years back. Mm-hmm. That was, I mean, that was just a cheeky idea because I felt, I knew that the only whiskey festival in Glasgow sold out a year in advance, and I was mm-hmm. I was just looking at it. a year in advance, mm-hmm. saying now every year a year in advance. I can only dream of such a thing, and I was just I just thought, how can I uh, how can I get a piece of that? <laughs> so I learned. That Learned how to learned how to come up with a whiskey festival. Like, I worked with my friend Neil Smiley, put together some serious branding. Neil, Neil Neil our designer is really amazing because he doesn't just help us with the design; he helps us brand the project. And I really feel like when you if you want to create if you want to create a project, brand it up first of all. Get yeah. your logo done. Make it a real thing. Make it a tangible thing. It's like the uh, mm-hmm. it's like having the having the notebook and writing what you're going to do in the notebook once you have the first step to actualize it is to write it down and mm-hmm. then to take take the progressive steps towards achieving the goal you know yeah. national whiskey festival was crazy it was a crazy mm-hmm. risk we put that event on sale i flew to paris <laughs> me and my colleague flew to paris we'd we'd never been to a whiskey festival before <laughs> <laughs> we went on sale the morning to Paris, we attended the Paris Whiskey Festival and then flew back a couple of days later, being like, How do we do that? <laughs> but, yeah. So that was that was a big risk, but that was that was a very rewarding one. 
And you know, the, the main worry is just trying to balance balance the books. You know, I don't need right. that. Like, I don't need a fortune. I don't really care that, that much about money. You know, of course, mm-hmm. I want to have a nice flat, and I want to have enough money to make sure that I can look after my family and provide for my daughter. You know, the uh, yeah, but the. Like, I didn't get into music to earn money. In fact, I was on the dole for almost two years mm-hmm. before I became a... After I, after, after I graduated, I graduated when I was 20. And I pretty much didn't write the dissertation. It was a marketing degree. I didn't bother writing the dissertation because I'd started managing Lapsus Lingui. And then it was almost two years I was on the dole. And Steve uh, and my... Uh, uh, Stephen Pasto was my New Deal for Musicians advisor. <laughs> uh, but, uh, and he was just really supportive, being like, yeah, it looks like you're trying your best, Brian. Lovely, lovely guy, Stephen. And I've, I worked very closely with him on Great Western recently. And it came out, a couple of press releases had that he was my New Deal advisor. Totally. And so, so moving, when you moved on, now working as 432 from Synergy, like, what's the, where was the name from that? Where did that come from? And my wife came up with it. Uh, 432 hertz is the natural frequency of the universe. Wow, that's deep. <laughs> and of all the yings there, then. I was not <laughs> expecting that. <laughs> so if you get, if you get a, group, a group of people to uh, do the Om chant, mm-hmm. you'll land on 432 hertz. Right. It's an orchestra, I'm sure it's an orchestra that tunes to that rather than 440. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Prince made it quite famous as the, as the golden frequency. That's right. And he, re, he remastered all of his records at 432 hertz as the bass frequency. Very interesting. Yeah. I'm glad I asked that, Brian. <laughs> you know, like, uh, I mean, I, I am uh, 39 now. I've definitely been, definitely becoming an old hippie, you know? <laughs> So through the, the sort of lockdown, how were things for you as as promoters? Like, was it a, a case of like cancellations and rescheduling and cancellations and rescheduling? Yeah, yeah, that's been uh, that's been horrific. I've had a great team to help me through that, and you know, for the first for the first like for six, eight, maybe even twelve weeks, I spent almost every day just walking my daughter around the around the River Kelvin. The uh, I took her out twice a day for at least two and a half hours a day because my wife had just just started working again. So that her, her making sure that she was able to contribute effectively coming back after uh, after paternal leave meant that I just was walking around hoping that Dylan would go to sleep and then listening to audiobooks on the uh, while she was asleep with just with one earbud in and the. Uh, Listen to some, listen to some really insightful stuff. Uh, but I, did, I basically wasn't able to do any work other than about an hour, an hour and a half a day, the, uh, which meant that I just had to had to rely on rely on the team to to get stuck in and try to and try to get over it. You know, and young Daniel started with us recently. Uh, he's he's been amazing throughout this mm-hmm. uh, throughout this procedure. So the uh, he's been just getting fired in. Getting stuck into all these avails, reschedules, and uh, yeah, uh, I mean, it's like we're. This is going to be a long, a long problem that we have to deal with as a as an industry. 
Mm. Once once we have a vaccine and once every once customer confidence has returned, then we'll we'll be we'll be back to normal. But you know, like it's not like I make money from gigs with fifty percent capacity in them. You know, so I lose money when a show looks like that. Almost always, I'm losing money when a show looks like that. Yeah. It's like I make I make money when gigs are rammed when they're full when they're full to capacity, and the uh, there's not there's not that much between those scenarios. So any kind of social distance show. It's almost impossible to make the finances work because any artist, any artist worth of those tickets usually has a big and worth and worth a high ticket price usually has quite a big infrastructure that they need to pay for. Yeah. The venue has a big infrastructure that it needs to pay for. The promoter has an infrastructure that it needs to pay for, and it's like, who pays everyone when you suddenly take a twenty a two thousand three hundred cap venue that normally costs like. 15k all in to hire or yep. 20k all in to hire who pays to make that go down to 700 capacity sure can you make the like i don't want to i don't want to promote gigs for yuppies you know and have mm-hmm. ticket prices at like 60 70 quid i like i have been very reluctant to get stuck in any vip ticket in uh, any moment and I, I like to laugh at people who ask me for vip access i'm like oh it's like <laughs> Very important. You're much more important than all the rest of the audience, aren't you? No, no I was just going to say, I've seen you did done online stuff as well. I've seen there's been quite a few. I've been dipping in just watching some of the online shows as well. Yeah, yeah quite totally. Good to yeah. See. Daniel's been working really hard on that, and uh, that's been terrific. But unfortunately, I've been uh, putting my daughter to bed uh, when those shows <laughs> have been on. <laughs> so, uh, I, do look, I do look forward to being able to just go to... Uh, Go home, say hi, have dinner with my wife and daughter, and then uh, go out to a gig. You know, have a couple of pints. <laughs> it's quite. Uh, I think realistically, we're we could be talking March, April next year. You know, I, I do feel like uh, like this, like December, January is going to, for for us to be back in a in a clear position. By then, is going to be a stretch. You know. Yeah. So, so we just need to try and hold on as best we can for that for that period. You know. Mm-hmm. Try and keep my team together as much as possible, and uh, the just be as resilient as we can. You know, just be sensible. With a bit, I mean, with a bit of luck, and the industry is going to need it. To be honest, that when things get back to normal, mm-hmm. we'll have a we'll have a turbocharged demand. But we're also facing like we're going to be facing big youth unemployment issues. We're going to be like there's going to be some economic problems which. Which are damaging, but I do think that Glasgow's appetite for live music is, um, throughout my career, has just proven to be insatiable. You know, and it's like True. it doesn't, it didn't show many signs of slowing at any point in my career. You know, which is now like almost like coming on twenty years, like seventeen, <laughs> eighteen years or something. You know. Yeah, I think as well. You guys were were very early on when this sort of lockdown happened. I remember you were one of the first venues I saw that did the crowd crowdfunding thing, which was mm. good to see, and it was good to see that you know forward thinking. I think you were quite on that again, which which is I mean, great. With, with, without, I mean, we still have some serious issues uh, with the hug, and I wouldn't even rule out another crowdfunder. But the uh, the yeah, it was it was important to it was important to get that to get that out there. I mean, the, I was just like all night. God, how are we going to survive this? And furlough wasn't a thing that anyone had even considered, you know. I think it did. It certainly made me realise that they see how serious it was, and I think it did for a lot of people as well. Like realise if families are are feeling that insecure about it. Yeah, I think it, it definitely hammered home. 
Yeah. It's funny that, like, I mean, some of our some of our core team were pretty heavily bonused. Mm-hmm. So they were on, like, small basic salaries with uh, tasty bonuses, tasty performance bonuses, creating, like, some decent jobs. And mm-hmm. the... Uh, but it was, it was quite annoying once furlough kicked in that those bonuses aren't included in the furlough, you know? Yeah. yeah it's, it's funny how, how it felt was down. I know. You wouldn't have thought you were being, you, you, I would, you would have thought we were just being responsible by taking that approach, by making sure that we weren't or we weren't spending too much to make the company on, on wages that would make the company unsustainable, you know? Yeah. Uh, I think the, the sort of, one of the things I like, I don't know if many people know it, the ethos behind Hug and Pint is having you know musicians who aren't on tour and, and crew who aren't on tour when they come back from tour and they can get to work in there like it's, it's such a beautiful Aye. idea that's really important and that that, fle- that flexible that flexible approach to working particularly as a new dad is uh, has become more important to me but i think it's really, it's really clear that that many people have been struggling including me have been struggling with mental health issues and i'm like i'm blessed with pretty uh I'm blessed with pretty, pretty good mental health because I, uh, I mean, I've been through a lot of serious incidents, and in, in my work, I've been through a lot of, a lot of bad situations. You know, uh, the you know, hospitalised, couple of occasions, assaulted, and but I've, but I've, uh, if I've been fortunate that I've been I've been able to recover from these things without any without any long-lasting consequences and actually kind of like just forget that they've happened you know <laughs> they, they don't trouble me on a day-to-day basis but the uh but with so many people so many people are really really struggling now and the, uh, mm-hmm. i think it's important when we when everyone gets back to work that people are just a bit more a bit more thankful a bit more focused a bit more supportive and so we're, we're definitely going to be looking at four-day weeks in the office I mean, we're pretty we've been pretty lax as far as when people come in to work. It's been pretty flexible. You go to a gig the night before. You kind of come in when you want. Like I'm, yeah. I, I want people to work when they want to work, you know. But those those four day weeks, I don't think we'll lose much productivity by moving to that and just being a bit stricter with the timings and allowing ourselves more more time to do the things we love, you know. More time, mm-hmm. more, more time for me to go surfing. More time for me to spend time with my family. I was going that was going to be my next question was if you managed to get in the water lately. <laughs> I, got, I got in a couple of times over, uh, ended up in St Andrews, Pease Bay and, Mac- and Macrahanish uh, towards the end of lockdown and the, uh, some, some amazing trips, you know. I, I love being in the water because I can't, I can't think about, when you're surfing you can only really think about surfing. That's true. <laughs> about trying to avoid drowning and standing up. <laughs> yeah. yeah. It's an all encompassing sport. I think that's uh, I think that's, yeah. really, that's really good to clear my head and make me focus on what's important, you know. I agree, uh, completely agree. I, uh, anyway, Brian, listen, thanks so much for, for taking the time today and, and having a chat with me. That was fantastic and great to hear more about you. Nice one, anytime. Thank you very much, Keith. I appreciate you taking the time to talk to me and I look forward to seeing you at the end of all this.